We started this brand new series called Covenant and Kingdom. And if you weren't there and you didn't get a chance to hear that, uh, you can hear the audio or video online uh, on our website. Those two words are a little bit archaic, right? I mean, I don't know if you ever use covenant at work or kingdom with your kids, but it does, you know, it's not two words that we use too often. One sounds a little bit like a tribal ritual and one sounds like an ancient imperial, imperial culture, but they're words that come out of the, the, the text and the story, especially uh, from the start of God's story in the Old Testament. And they're like two strands like a DNA that, that, that's weaved through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, in the whole biblical story. And two words that um, I think could also be resembled with two other words. And it's relationship and responsibility. Covenant and kingdom, relationship and responsibility. And last week, we, we just did an intro to what we called covenant relationship and trying to explore that theme and that, that strand in the biblical story. And we talked about it as something that God initiated with us, with humanity. Um, I love that. Even just represents uh, Amy's songs, you know, like, like his ladder coming down to us in a sense. And it's what makes Christianity unique in the world. And some might say it makes it unique among world religions. Some would say in a better way that it makes Christianity not a religion but a relationship that God has initiated with us uh, because he loves us. And last week we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah, this really popular uh, couple or figures uh, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. And we read how, how, discovered how God entered into relationship with them and how he wants to enter into relationship with us. How he gave them his identity and how he longs to give us a fresh new identity as part of his family. And the, the kind of privilege uh, and joy and, and access that that gave Abraham and Sarah, but even us, to God and who he is and his, his resources. And so when we look at relationship with God, it's laced throughout the whole biblical story. But here's something that's important, and we're going to move on with this today. God didn't just wire us for relationship with him, and God doesn't just invite us into relationship, but he's also invited us to responsibility. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how is God inviting us, or at least the start of that today, to responsibility and just kind of prepare for that. I mean, we know the difference, right, between relationship and responsibility. If you ever joined a sports team, uh, you know that, you know, it, you want to get in and do something. Imagine you join, like, some sports team, and then the coach, you look at the schedule, and you look at your, like, team schedule, and all you see scheduled is, like, Friday nights at St. Hubert Barbecue. And you're like, but I joined the volleyball team. I want to play, right? I mean, I want to get to know my teammates, but I want to play, right? Imagine you, you get a job somewhere, and then the manager sets up a whole bunch of team building uh, you know, environments, which are cool, but like all you're doing for six months is doing uh, icebreakers and uh, climbing mountains to get to know each other better and figuring out you know, who you are. But then you're like, but wait a second, I want to contribute to the mission of this company. When are you going to call that out of me? And that's the difference between relationship and responsibility. And today we're going to look at this idea of responsibility through another biblical figure. And his name is Joseph. It's, it's too long of a story to go all the way through because it's 12 or 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. But we're going to get a sketch of his and then a particular part of this story that I think is going to really help us. And so we're going to jump into this story of Joseph. And, and the first place... Well, we, not the first place we meet him, but in the main place where Genesis tells us about Joseph, it's, it's Genesis chapter 37. 
And in fact, this is the, one of the first lines as, as the writer tells us about Joseph. He says in verse 2, he says, This is the account of Jacob's line. Now you're thinking, well, I thought we were going to talk about Joseph, you know, not Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's father. And last week, we looked at Abraham and Sarah. And if we walk through the biblical story, we discover why this little line describing why Jacob, Joseph's story is telling us about Jacob's line or family is important. Because Joseph was used by God to preserve and keep the promise that he gave back to Abraham which we learned about last week. See, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob would eventually have 12 sons. Joseph was the 11th son. And Jacob's name would be changed to Israel, which we know then would become the nation of Israel. And here in this short line, we get a sense of what's happening here because God is going to use Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, to do something in regards to that covenant relationship. He promised Abraham, when you look at the stars and you see how vast they are, that's what your offspring is going to be like. But of course, in a time and a place and a culture like the ancient Near East, how would that continue? Well, God, as the story continues through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we read about Jacob's sons. And what he's going to do through Joseph is keep his promise to Abraham to build this nation, to build this group of people. And Joseph's life is a part of how he does that. Joseph is a really cool guy. I mean, I think in today's age, you might read a story of him on, in GQ magazine or um, maybe a TED Talk or Forbes, you know, not a nasty GQ magazine one, but like, a, like, a, like, oh, wow, this guy did something really neat with his life type of story, you know? And so maybe Forbes because of the success factor. Because if you read through J- Joseph's story, some of the things that jump out at you would be, oh, this guy's a person of integrity. And this person is a high-capacity individual. He can do stuff. He has a lot of skill, and, and he, he, he's used in great ways. And the text even tells us he's good-looking. Like he says, oh, this is, he's a good-looking guy. And so you read all about this, about Joseph, and, and you get a sense of a little bit about who he is. And it's somewhat of a success and resilience story because he goes from riches to rags to riches to rags to riches in the story. We first meet him as a teenage kid with a lot of potential, a kid who's loved so much by his father, but also favored by him, and because of that, he's hated by his brothers. And it gets so bad and so awful and so tense that his brothers just want to get rid of him, and eventually they sell him to slave traders. That's his rags part of the story. He ends up in Egypt and finds favor with the king, and one of the king's officials, Potiphar, and he gets, starts to get used in the kingdom and he starts moving up to riches. A couple of other things take place and it's a roller coaster of circumstances that land him in prison. But finally, Joseph is in charge under the king for all of Egypt. And you, you sweep through his story and you see where eventually God will use him and it's the place where God does two things. He uses him to save Egypt during a very difficult time and to preserve this family that will grow into the nation of Israel. Here's a little bit of a summary of the impact. Here's Genesis chapter 41, verse uh, 41 to 43. Just, this is just a little bit of a glimpse of it. One part here in, in Joseph's story. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I here put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. And thus he put him in charge of the whole land. Here's Joseph eventually being used by God to save Egypt. But there's something else going on in this story. And we go to the end of Genesis chapter 50. And it says this in verse 19. He says, but Joseph says to them, this is his brother. So his brothers finally come back to him, ask him for forgiveness for what they've done. Joseph embraces them. And here's part of the end of the story. But Joseph says to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And reassured them and spoke to them kindly. It's amazing what ends up happening with Joseph's life. The responsibility he has that God would use him to save countless, countless lives. Egypt, the nation that's existing, and Israel, the nation that's just starting to form under Egypt. And in this story, we, got, we get a sense of the start of what the Bible says, talks about as the kingdom of God. This, this sense that God wants to work in the world through his people, through those who are part of his family. And there, God has a certain way of working with his people and with the world. And God wants to use people or use us in that. And God's people are meant to look different and be different in the world around them. God's kingdom has a different value system, has a different way of doing things. And so we start to get a sense of what kingdom means, even in this story. And we discover in Joseph that God actually wants to use us, you and me, to fulfill his plans. He wants to give us responsibility. He wants to work in the world through us. He wants us to reflect his kingdom to the people around us. He wants us to live our lives out in his ways so people see something unique and different and turn to him. And God doesn't, he doesn't just initiate relationship like I want to be in relationship with you. That's part of what he does. But then he gives us responsibility and he says, I want you to serve me in your world. So, but here's the big question. Are you ready for responsibility? This is kind of the question that hovers throughout Joseph's story. Uh, someone put a toilet paper on my stand, and, and uh, I guess they're trying to be funny. If you're on Facebook, you might know what this means. But uh, my wife decided that, that she would just um, you know, tell the world how irresponsible I am at home. And, and so now millions of people now see this. And so this was my lack and neglect of responsibility at my house. And uh, so, yes, that's what I did yesterday. And... And I'm going to take her smartphone away from her so she doesn't take pictures anymore. <laughs> but what, what this picture says, this is what this picture says, right? This picture says, as in my wife's voice speaking to me, you really want relationship, but you're not ready for responsibility, <laughs> right? That's, that, that's what toilet paper says. In Joseph's life, that's the question that comes up. You know, I want relationship with you, Joseph. I'm keeping the covenant with Abraham. Are you ready for 
relationship. And now none of you are going to get that toilet paper out of your head as we keep speaking. But just think about this. There's this thread in Joseph's life. And what it is, it's the development of his character. It's the progress of the kind of person that God wants him to become in order for him to be ready for how God wants to use him. Joseph has immense skill, incredible capacity, a lot of gifts. He's even good looking, the Bible tells us. And yet we meet Joseph for the first time. And when we meet him for the first time, it's life is all about him. He's self-centered, not God-centered. But God has great responsibility for him. But there's part of his character that's not ready. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through three sections of his life where Joseph moves from being self-centered to being God-centered and how he can grow in being prepared for the kind of responsibility that God has in store for him and see what we can learn from that. And so we meet Joseph as a teen. He's 17 years old in chapter 37. He's one of Jacob's youngest sons. So Jacob has 10 other sons besides Joseph. But his father treats him like the firstborn. He really favors him. And if you read the story, you get a sense that Jacob is a little bit of a passive father. He's too preoccupied and too busy to care uh, too much about what's going on with his children. And so his children have horrible relationships. And, and there's some of the, the, the difficult and uh, unfortunate things that take place because of the kind of family that they're becoming. And it's not a great start for the family that needs to represent who God is in the world. Jacob was older when he has J- uh, Joseph. And his, his uh, second wife, who was the wife and initial wife that he initially really wanted, was Rachel. And she never had children. And then she has Joseph. So now later in life, this woman that he fought for for so long finally has a child. It's his 11th son. And for Jacob, it's like, this is a new lease on life. This is a new opportunity. All the problems I had with my first 10 kids, maybe I can do something good with this kid, Joseph. And so he favors him. And he puts way too much attention on him. And it creates jealousy and conflict and unhealthy relationships. And Jacob does something that maybe we think is all right, but it adds fuel to the fire. He gives Joseph a beautiful robed coat. And if you know the story at all, then part of Joseph's story, the famous part, is that his dad gives him this wonderful multicolored coat. The scriptures tell us that it's a long-sleeved coat. And a long-sleeved coat in an agricultural culture where most of your sons work out in the fields means something really significant. It means, you know what? Your brothers are going to wear the short-sleeved coats, And the shorter coats, because they're going to go into the field and collect the crops and do the work, we're going to let you manage that. You got the long sleeves. You don't really got to do much work. You got to do other kind of work. So imagine his brothers who already know that his father favors him. Now Joseph has the coat that likely leads to the kind of work he's going to do, which is not manual. He's more of a manager. But in a culture like that, where there's so much manual labor happening, that presents some problems and his brothers get jealous. It gets so bad in, in, verse, in chapter 37 in verse 4. It says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That's how difficult it got. So here's Joseph. And one thing about Joseph which is awesome is his, his capacity, his skill. But he also has another gift. He's a dreamer. And when he has dreams, he he knows that God has given him some of these dreams. And he can interpret these dreams and he knows what they mean. And he shares these dreams. Here's one of the problems with his self-centeredness. He shares these dreams with no filter. He just 
Like, hears them, sees them, and then tells people around them. And he's not considering Joseph his brothers. Check out what he does. Verse 5 is so awesome. He says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Well, this is why. He said to him, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. Like, okay. Uh, He continues, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he said. Then he had another dream. Like, Joseph, just shut up. You know, like, don't, don't, just keep it to yourself until you're 25, right? But he says, listen, guys, this is what happens. I, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars, they were bowing down to me. I mean, Joseph is not acting smart here. He's living this self-centered type of moment. And one of the results is, is that the climax of the emotions is that his brothers just want to get rid of him. And they want him dead. Later in, in chapter 37, his brothers are in a place called Dotham. And um, his dad sends Joseph, go out and you know, see how they're doing and what's going on. And so this is what happened. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. There's this moment that Joseph, in his self-centeredness, without wisdom, is not ready for this responsibility. He's not ready for what God has gifted him with. He's not ready for even the capacity he has to manage and lead, which eventually we'll see him do. And here's this brief moment in his life where we say, oh, here's a self-centered Joseph that's not ready for responsibility, even though God has so much in store for him. And here's the next scene. It also involves a dream. Joseph doesn't end up dying. His brothers end up figuring out a way to make it look like he, he died so his dad would know that he was gone, and they sell him to slave traders. And the slave traders bring him to Egypt, and he lands uh, into Egypt. But then what happens is, over time... Potiphar, his boss, Potiphar's wife, uh, has a thing for him, and she tries so hard for Joseph to sleep with her, but he refuses because he's a person of integrity. Well, she sets him up for failure and basically creates a scenario where it looks like he did. And so his boss is furious with him, and his boss sends him to prison. Here's Joseph in prison. A few days later, two other guys come down to prison, the cupbearer and the baker. And they're now in prison with him, and they're all not having a great time. But these two guys both have a dream. And so they're wondering what these dreams mean. And they ask Joseph what they think it means. And here's Joseph, kind of a little further off in his years and further off in his experience. He says this in chapter 40, verse 8, when they say, hey, we both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph tells them, do not interpretations come from God? Tell me your dreams. So here we see a, a Joseph that's a little bit progressed. He's, it's not self-centered Joseph, it's half-centered Joseph. He's, he's, he's acknowledging that dreams come from God, but there's almost this sense like, hey guys, tell me your dreams. I mean, he's in prison, he wants to leverage this, he wants to get out of here. Maybe if I work this for them and I can help them with this, I have this gift, maybe it'll be good for them and it'll be good for me. And we see this side of Joseph that's a little bit more dependent on God, but still 
take some credit for his gift. Like, yeah, God does this, but you know what? Tell me your dreams. I'll tell you what they mean. And here we see this dangerous phase in Joseph's life. But you know what? I think we can all relate to that. There's this phase that we often find ourselves in. We verbally give lip service to God. We verbally say, even this morning, we worshiped God, right, with our voices, and we read these words off the screen, and we took them as our own, and we said, God, everything is yours, all is yours, the credit is all yours, but then there's part of us, part of us, that say, but I, you know what, I just, I can take care of this. God's awesome, God's done so many good things, God's provided for me, but I'm so, I'm such a good person at work i make things happen i'm so good with people or i can make money or i'm wise in this and so there's this part of us that we're half centered we're like yes god it's all about you but then there's some motivation in our heart that says i still want some glory out of this for me and that's that heart half centered part of joseph's life he's not ready yet for what god wants to do with him The cupbearer gets out of prison. Joseph hopes he's going to get a word in. Nothing happens. He's stuck there for two more years. But another dream comes up in the kingdom. And it comes from Pharaoh himself. And this moves Joseph slowly, slowly to this God-centered place that he needs to be in. Pharaoh has this dream and no one in the kingdom can interpret this dream. He's looking everywhere for anybody to tell him what his dreams mean. Well, finally, this cupbearer is like, I remember a guy. He told me my dreams. Maybe you should use him. So Pharaoh's like, get this guy. And he, he summons Joseph. And Joseph comes up. And immediately Pharaoh's like, I heard you can interpret dreams. Couldn't you interpret my dream? And I love what Joseph says, chapter 41, verse 16. He says, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Pharaoh tells him the dream. Joseph listens. And this dream is about seven years of economic abundance and seven years of economic famine. And this dream will prepare Pharaoh and the whole kingdom to be ready for the seven years of famine. They can prepare during the seven years of abundance. And who gets put it all in charge of this? It's Joseph. But there's a shift that takes place in Joseph's heart. Did you see Joseph's wake-up moment? Did you see that moment that just changed everything for Joseph? When he's asked, he doesn't just say, God interprets dreams, tell me your dream. He doesn't just quickly jump into it as he was maybe as a teenager, self-centered. But he says, I cannot do it. But God will. Isn't that different? That is so different. There's something that has changed in Joseph's heart over the course of many, many years that moves him from this self-centered person to a God-centered person. It's interesting because it's still Joseph. It's still, he still has this gift. And God still enables him over that time period, whether he was self-centered or God-centered, to see dreams or interpret dreams or to lead or be effective in what he does. But the difference is so big because now God gets the credit. Now he recognizes, I can't do this on my own. This is not my gift. I didn't make this up. This is God's doing. And now when his whole life is on the line, he could easily kind of be, oh man, this is my moment. Let me show Pharaoh that I can do this stuff. 
But he can't because his heart is different. He says, I can't do it, Pharaoh, but God will. And it's in this moment that Joseph is ready for this responsibility that God was preparing him for. This responsibility to save many, many lives, both in Egypt and to preserve Israel as a nation. And here's Joseph now ready for how God will use him. See, Joseph moves from the center of the universe, and then he steps out of the way and says, God, you're going to be. I want, you're, you're the center of the universe. And I acknowledge that. He moves from self-centered to God-centered. And that's the moment that God breaks into our lives in the most profound ways and uses us. He works in us when we come to the moment where we say, it's not about me. It's not even half about me. I want to live a God-centered life. And I want to be ready for whatever God has in store for me. Let me just end with a few questions and then we'll wrap this up. Think about this. Could God have used Joseph even or until, uh, could God have used Joseph fully uh, even while he was self-centered? Could he have used him in any way? Why? Someone says no and I say a bit. Yeah. I think he could use him a little bit. God can do whatever he wants. Was Joseph incapable until he fully surrendered? No, he was capable. We see his capacity in his work in Potiphar's house in the prison what I'm trying to get at is we don't need to be perfect for God to use us. But there's something that happens, the full impact of God's vision, the full impact of God's work in us happens only when we move from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. God can still use us in different parts of our lives. And sometimes he uses us in the most frail ways, even when we're frail or inconsistent. And he can use us in indirect ways. But the picture of Joseph, what it gives us is there's this full way that God wants to use us. There's this way that God has in store for you and me and all of us and even our church to say, I want to, when you fully, fully surrender to me, when you come to this point of humility, when you come to this point where you step out of the way and say, I want us to be, I want to be a God-centered person, a God-centered church, a God-centered family, a God-centered business, whatever it is. And then God says, okay, now you're ready for the fullness of what I want to do in you. Here's another question. Are we only used by God in big ways like Joseph? You know, too many preachers use Moses and Joseph and David and Deborah and Esther to say, you can be an Esther. You can be just like Esther. You can be just like Joseph. You can be just like Moses. You can be just like Paul. And I don't think that this story says when we're fully surrendered to God, God's going to make us a Joseph. Like God's going to make us the prime minister of Canada or something, right? Under God's rule. Like, that's not what the story is about. The story is about one person who God used specifically to save Egypt, to save Israel. But part of that is God will use us in various degrees, in some small ways, in some big ways, however he wants to use us. In Joseph, we get the fullest picture of this potential, what can happen when we surrender our lives to Jesus. Some people say, oh, when I'm fully surrendered, will I be like Billy Graham and speak in front of like millions of people? Maybe. But maybe God will use you with two or three. Maybe that's how God's going to use you in such a profound way or use me in such a profound way. Then regardless whether it's big or small, the world gets a glimpse of what God is up to. 
Here's what Mike Breen says in his book called Covenant and Kingdom. He says this, that God's looking for conduits. He's looking for ways that his future, meaning the full restoration of all things, can break through so that people can get a window into heaven and say, God is good. I'll believe in him. That can happen in small ways, in big ways, in public ways, in private ways, in homes, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, in gatherings like this. And here's the last question. Why would God pick a spoiled kid with pride issues from a family with a whole bunch of baggage? Think about it, right? Think about it. A passive father who unfortunately creates a scenario where his kids are unhealthy. Joseph is spoiled. He knows he's good at stuff. He has the dreams. He has the visions. He has the interpretations. Why would God pick out a spoiled kid with pride issues from a family with all that baggage? And we look back to the theme of scriptures, which is grace. God looks at Joseph and says, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to work with you. And as you slowly come around to discovering who I am and how much I love you, you're going to discover that it's not about you, it's about me. And that's grace. And God uses us because of grace. And he uses us also for his kingdom purposes. He uses the weak and the strong. He uses the quiet and the loud. He uses the large and the small. He uses those with platforms and those without. He uses us in different places. And that's how God works. He invites us into responsibility. Let's stand as we close in prayer. And think about some of these things over the next week and as we continue this series. But... Let me just say this as we pray. God has not only created you and me for relationship. He wants to give you and me responsibility. He loves us. He invites us not only into relationship with him, he invites us into responsibility. And even today or tomorrow, as we surrender our lives fully to him, look for ways that he's going to give you responsibility. Whether it's influencing a friend at work, whether it's shaping the home environment that you're responsible for, whether it's engaging or starting in within a ministry or a new ministry or how God's going to use you with people, however that might be, God longs to be in relationship with us, but he wants to give us responsibility. The question is, are we ready? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that I don't have to be like Joseph. There's no pressure. Um, there's no pressure to handle the stress of a nation. And yet, at the same point, God, we want to say that we're open for you to use us in any ways that you want. God, right now, you see each and every one of our hearts, each and every one of our gifts, each and every one of our circumstances. And we say thank you for grace because. You don't look at us in how we just are, but who you are calling us to be. And we thank you that you work with us and that you invite us into this journey and that you want to shape our hearts towards being people who are fully surrendered to you, where we can say, you take the glory, Lord. And God, we thank you because you include us into your kingdom purposes. And we are so grateful for the relationship and want to keep growing in it. But may we not miss 
may I not miss, God, the responsibilities you long to entrust us with as we partner with you and reflect your kingdom in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.